that's what today's about. Uh, and to do that, though, uh, I'm going to have two passages read out. Julian's going to come forward now and just read through two passages from Scripture, uh, from, one, from either end of the Scriptures, two short passages. They'll be up on the screen. And uh, hopefully this will kick us off into a time of just focusing on, on, on what prayer is and what prayer is about. Thank you, Julian. When Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commanded as having plea, commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Thanks, Julian. That's from Hebrews, that last passage. So you had Genesis and you had Hebrews. And although these passages, they don't even mention the word prayer, uh, they don't. Actually, I'd argue they are all about prayer. All right? They're all about prayer. And I say that because prayer, look, before it's anything else, it's about communication. It's about relationship with the one we're praying to, with God. So it's all about prayer. And these passages focus on a man who had a relationship so deep with God. In other words, he had a prayer life so deep with God that it appears he didn't even die. God just took him to heaven, which is astonishing. So, so I want to just focus on this story for a few minutes this morning and identify I, what I see as a couple of keys to his prayer life that I'm praying will be applicable and helpful for us over our week of prayer. All right? And in fact, I'm going to pray that God will make it so. All right? So I'm going to just pray, God, God speak to us. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, that you put these stories in your word to provoke and teach us. And Lord, this week of prayer stretching out before us, we want them to be meaningful and profound and, and powerful and, and life-changing. And so, Lord, even now as we talk about this man, Enoch, what he learned, would you please come upon us by your Spirit and, God, put within us a heart to seek your face in the way that he must have done. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right, so let's go back to Genesis 5 to where Enoch pops up. And he pops up in a very odd passage. Just name after name, and Enoch's name pops up. And you might not want to turn to Genesis five. Don't worry about it. I'm going to put it on the screen again, and I'm going to read quickly through the passage that he pops up in. All right. So Genesis chapter five. There it is. Here, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. Days of Adam after he fathered Seth, 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. That's all the days that Adam lived. 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years. That's all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Moving on. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, had other sons and daughters. That's all, and he died. 
When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he followed Jerry. Mahalalel lived after he followed Jerry's agent 30 years and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Mahalalel. Ah, he died. When Jared lived 162 years, he followed Enoch. Jared lived after he followed Enoch 800 years, 8,000 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he followed Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he followed Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It's like he, he explodes onto the scene. All right? I mean, it's a very odd passage. It's, it's a dull passage that I just read through, but it's an odd passage. And it's odd, of course, because these guys live such an incredibly long time. I mean, don't they? 807, 905, 895, 962 years old. And uh, we don't know how that happened. I've got no clues as to how come they live so long. I used to think, well, well, maybe they just develop slowly. You know, maybe they, maybe, maybe they're 300 years old will be the same as a t -t 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 teenager in our day. You know, so instead of your, your terrible teens, you've got your terrible 300s. <laughs> now, my Charlie's turned 300. Can't do a thing with him. Never gets out of bed. <laughs> or my Harry's turned 80, starting school tomorrow. How wonderful, how cute. I have to think maybe that was the way. We don't know how it worked. But also, get this, it's incredibly dull because if you read through it, there's nothing that stands out about these guys at all. Nothing happens. Just so-and-so lived, so-and-so fathered, and so-and-so died. Nothing else. And I guess the implication is that their long lives must have been incredibly dull. Incredibly dull. And living so long must have made it even more dull. I mean, even today, can you imagine living to 900 years old? I, I, I think even today, with all that's going on, I think it will be a little bit dull. And I've really thought about this, right? I reckon by the age of 300, I would have been to every country. I would have tried every style of food. I would have read nearly every book. I would have watched every film. I would have... Um, tried every sport, I would have done every extreme sport. By my 500th birthday, I think I'd find it all pretty dull. I mean, even the most extreme sport, bungee jumping, the thought of it terrifies me now. But if you've done it 50,000 times, it's like, oh, here we go again. Oh. <laughs> very dull, very dull. And then imagine living for another 400 years after that. And of course, back in Enoch's day, well, there's nothing to do, is there? It's before TV. Netflix isn't even there. I mean, what do you do? It's before books, even. All you do is a bit of hunting and fishing, a bit of plowing, and you go to sleep at night. That's it. For 900 years. All very grey. So the, the list is very dreary. So-and-so lives, so-and-so fathers, so-and-so dies. All very grey. Until you get to Enoch. And when we come to him, it's like Enoch walked with God 300 years. And then it's repeated in verse 24. Enoch walked with God. And followed by this amazing statement, then he was not because God took him away. And I don't know about you, but I remember the first time I ever came across this passage, it totally floored me. I thought, Enoch was not. I remember thinking, Enoch was not what? It's like, it's like, what's going on here? He was not. Enoch was not because God took him. Now, now the Hebrews passage gives us a bit more detail. 
says this, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him or had taken him. Which I guess means this. One day Enoch said goodbye to his family. No, kissed his wife goodbye, said goodbye to his 200-year-old toddlers, or whatever it was back then. Goes off down the garden path with his sandwiches and just never came home. It says he was not found, so they must have sent out search parties. And for all I know, maybe they just found his sandals and a half-eaten sandwich. Basically, he's gone. Now, we are told he could not be found. And it says, we're told, he did not die, but God took him. In other words, God just walked him into glory, which is staggering. He never experienced dying. And so whatever else you say about the passage, you have to conclude that that somehow his walk with God, his relationship with God, his communion with God, his, his fellowship with God, his prayer life with God was so deep and so intimate and so rich and so profound that one day God could only respond by saying, Enoch, Enoch, don't worry about going back to your house. Just come home with me now. Oh, forget about the dying part. You just come home with me. That must have been how it happened. Something about his prayer life. Folks, I want to pray like that. It tells me there's more. I don't want my epitaph to be just Pete lived, Pete fathered, and Pete died. There's got to be more to my life than that. Now, I want my prayer life with God to be that deep, that intimate. And you see, through the blood of Jesus, through the Terepika, the cross, through the cross, Jesus has taken down every barrier between us and God, and through the gift of his Holy Spirit, my expectations for such a prayer life should be far greater than an Old Testament saint who lived centuries ago. And I'll be honest with you, I want that depth of prayer relationship with God. I do. And I've been thinking about it recently, how God has blessed me over the years. I got saved when I was a teenager. And I look back over my life and I see how God has touched me and blessed me and spoken to me and shared with me over the years. But I tell you what, I groan for more. I long for more. I so long for more. So, so I want to learn, Enoch, what did you do to have such a prayer life? I'd love to know what it is. What do these passages tell us about his prayer life? Well, I just see, as I look at them, two basic things that I think are as applicable now today as they ever were back in his day. Two things, right? The first is this. If you're going to really grow a prayer communion with God, number one, it's not rocket science, number one, you have to believe he's really there. All right? You have to believe he's really there. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would come to him, God, uh, come to God must believe that he is. You must believe he's there. Faith is really important, and it's true, isn't it? Look, if you really were absolutely convinced that the God of all heaven and earth was out in the car park waiting to hear your prayers, if you really believed that, this room would be totally empty. We'd all be out there, wouldn't we? You couldn't stop me. If I really believe that God, heaven and earth, created it all, is out there waiting to hear me pray, I would be out there like a shot, and I would blurt out everything. 
I'll tell them about my aches and pains and my, my bank balance. I'll tell them about issues in the office. I'll tell them about every little, every little thing, like kids and the grandkids. I'll tell them everything. I'd want him to know because I'd be convinced that he's there. And then I wouldn't stop at me. I'd want to tell him about the world. God, what about what's going on in China with the flu? And what about the Syrian refugees? And what about the difficulty in Ethiopia? God, I would tell him everything because I would be absolutely convinced that he was there. You couldn't stop me praying. So it's an issue of faith because the Bible clearly tells me that God is not just out in the car park. He's here now. He is here now. In fact, he's already promised he'll never leave me or forsake me. He is here. It's an issue of faith. Enoch was convinced he's there. The question is, are you? Are you? Am I? That's the question. So, 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 so faith is crucial, which means that surely one of the greatest priorities of my life has to be to nurture my faith and increase my faith and protect my faith and grow my faith. Surely, yes? Surely that's got to be our responsibility. And just to encourage you, really, it is something that we can do. You can do this. You see, faith is a funny thing. Faith, it's a little bit like a, like a flower or a plant. And all a plant needs or a flower needs is an environment for it to flourish and grow. Isn't that true? And that's where our responsibility comes in. We are called to create an environment in our lives where faith can flourish and grow. It's not that hard to understand, really. I was out in our garden just the other day uh, actually it sounds like I'm always out in the garden by saying that but actually that's not true uh, I'm very rarely out in our garden in fact embarrassingly uh, I'm absent from our garden often mostly and so a few weeks ago I'm looking out on our garden and I'm thinking what a terrible state it's in what a total mess how can anything grow out there it's full of all kinds of muck and weeds and everything else. And then Julie and I, we look at each other sometimes, we say, we're not really gardeners, are we? And, uh, and then suddenly something comes upon us, and we think, right, this is it, we're going to get out there, we're going to do this thing, we're going to be gardeners for about half an hour. So ready, are we ready? And we go out there, and so the other day, there I am in front of this little bush, little pink flowers, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, what a total mess, <laughs> what a total mess. It's got weeds in there, and rocks in there, and and plastic in there and, and paper in there. Well, man, I've been under this for a long time. And it's just wiltering away and it's just sort of flagging. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a terrible scene. But I tell you what, you've got to ask yourself the same thing sometimes about your faith. What state is my faith in? What state is it in? What have I allowed in that's choking my faith and smothering it? That's killing it off. That needs to be pulled out. You see, you see, weeds just creep in, don't they? And if you're like me, don't know much about gardening, I don't know what I'm looking at. I think a weed is a flower half the time. I mean, they look nice, some of these weeds, don't they? I see nothing wrong with them. Let the weed grow. Let the... But they creep in. And, and, and that's the thing about, about weeds against our faith is that they can quietly come in and smother. And it can be the most ordinary things can do that. Things like TV can do that, you know. TV can do Now, I'm not saying throw your tally out before I go too far. I don't, please, don't throw your tally out. 
But you know what it's like? You know, I think of our TV, it's so worldly. Worldly stuff just comes pouring through all the time. And it doesn't feed my faith most of the time. I mean, when was the last time you watched a film on TV and felt like jumping out of your chair and going, praise the Lord? Not often. Not often. And I used to always think that Ben-Hur was the only film that could do that for me. But uh, the old Ben-Hur, not the new one. Um, but, but, but TV, by definition, is just full of cynicism and, and worldliness. And, and often you think, oh, I'm watching an innocent program. Nothing wrong with that. And it suddenly turns. Man, I find that all the time. Things like TV. Social media, YouTube, Facebook, sports, interests, sometimes just pressures at work or ambitions or worldliness or, or habitual sin. It all just comes in and it chokes our faith. And sometimes, look, we just have to bite the bullet. You know, sometimes it's like we make a choice and we have to rip some things out. The other day, under that rose bush, I'm ripping stuff out and it's hard work and I'm getting right under there digging up these rocks, but it's a choice I had to make. And if we don't do it, the flower weakens and eventually dies. So can I just ask you for a second, even now, just to pause and to think seriously before God, what state is my faith in at the moment? What state is it in? How, how strong is it at the moment? What's, what's pressing in? What's, what's, what's coming in and choking it? What am I watching at the moment? What are, what are the people I'm hanging out with? What about the music I'm listening to? What about the books I'm reading? Is it, is it really helpful or not? It's good to ask yourself that. What do I need to rip out and close the door on and say goodbye to? It's a choice we make. And of course, not only is it good to take stuff out sometimes, there are other things, of course, with a garden you put in. Ray, isn't that true? You're a, you know all about gardens. Fertilizer. See, Ray, he'll tell you what fertilizer to put on. There are things you can put on your garden as well. Same thing for my faith to grow. There are things I can do, I can add. You know, coming here Sunday by Sunday is good for my faith. That's when I come together. We come together with the people. We worship God, and I, and I hear prophetically, and I hear preaching and teaching that affects me, and I meet with those who are also on the fight alongside me. It does good for my faith. I don't have the luxury not to turn up on a Sunday, in a sense, because it feeds my faith. You say, well, you come because you're paid. That's why you come every Sunday. <laughs> not true. I came every Sunday and then they started paying me. That's how it works. Now I know I need to be here. I need to have my faith stirred and fed. So I come every Sunday. I can't afford not to. Connect group. You know, Julie and I, we love our connect group. So we come out our connect group in the evening. We think, man, we felt so good. We felt filled with faith. What would we have done otherwise? Oh, well, watch the telly. Prayer meetings like this week of prayer, wonderful. Reading good biographies and all kinds of things we can put in to grow our faith. But listen, supremely, supremely, the thing that builds my faith and that fertilizes my faith is this book here. Folks, it's the Bible. Listen, if you think the Bible is still just a group of nice devotional stories and good directives, you are, you've missed it terribly. The Bible is God-breathed, Paul says. It's the God-breathed words of God. It is life. 
And as I read it, as I'm reading the Bible, as I'm prayerfully reading, the Spirit comes upon the words, and the words bring life to me. I can't do without it. Jesus says in Matthew 4, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so here in this book, we have the God-breathed words of God still proceeding from his mouth, and they are as necessary for me every day as bread or food is. It's the word of God. Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's the word of God that stirs faith. Listen, I want to just put in a plea here for the Bible. You need it. It is a place where faith comes. So it's the word of God. Read the Bible. Faith comes by hearing. And to be honest, I don't read the Bible silently anymore. I gave that up years ago. I read it out loud. And as I read it out loud, it affects my soul. It feeds my soul. It's the Bible. And I find it easy to pray because faith is there. And I know that he is, that he is there for me. It feeds my prayers. Bring back the Bible. These days, I know we've got the app on our phone and everything else. And maybe if you use your app, that's fine. But on my, bio, on my phone, that's just one app. There's so many other apps on there. I've got to find my Bible app, but I can, this I can carry around and read it and read it out. I'm sorry, I'm going off on one now. But this is important. It's the Bible. It's all about nurturing this garden of faith so that I can be convinced that he is and I can pray. So, so, so going back to Enoch, he believed that God is. It's a question of faith. Faith is important. And number two, the second thing I see with Enoch is simply this. He had a basic desire or hunger for God. Right? He desired God. It says here, it says, uh, whoever would come to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's desire. That's hunger. That's that's yearning. And can I just say, this is one of the biggest areas of struggle we face as believers in the 21st century. It's desire. And I say that because we are, we're surrounded, or in fact, we are crowded in by so many things that compete for our desires. I mean, back in the past, maybe 50 years ago, 60 years ago, you'd go to your job, you'd work all day, you'd come back home, you'd come back into your lounge with your family or your friends, and you'd talk a bit, read a magazine or two, and then you'd go to bed. Now in your lounge, you press a button, and the whole world rushes in. Suddenly, you can go to any place on the planet, as it were. It's all bombarding you. You can any experience or nearly any thrill. You can do that by pressing the mouse button. It's all there. Any excitement, any, any worldliness, in fact, any sin is right there in your own home. You don't need to move from your armchair. And so much entertainment, we're living in a billion-dollar entertainment industry. You've got so much out there that you can do that entices you. And it's so intrusive as well. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't know how many times I started to pray and then found myself looking on for Facebook. I mean, is that only me or is there other people as well? I mean, it's, just, it's always in knocking on the door of your mind. Oh, the phone, the phone goes off. And these smartphones, you can go anywhere on your phone. It's all there and it's rushing in and it's so profound. There's so much coming at us and it not only saps our faith, but our desire. 
Our desire for God can wither and shrink. Now, I know I've said it often enough before, but it's true. These days, we are living in like a giant sweet shop. Lollies and sweets everywhere. And they all promise instant satisfaction and instant entertainment. And it's all around us. It's all there. And the trouble is, and, we can, and it, it causes us to develop a sweet tooth. The more sweet things you eat, the more sweet things you need. And the trouble is we can find ourselves thinking in our heart of hearts, well, compared to all of this stuff that I can do and be part of, compared to all of that, well, uh, God and uh, my Bible uh, and, and the church, well, I know I should and I know I ought to, but look at this. I will in a few minutes. I, I want this. Can you see what the dilemma is, what the problem is? And, and you know, we can fall into a deception and a bit of a trap. And the deception is this. The deception is my desires are just too, too big, too, too, too strong to be tied down to, to the Bible or to God or to, to Christian things. There's so much out there. My desire is too strong. And that is a deception of the enemy. I always love what uh, C.S. Lewis said. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Can you see what he's saying? God offers us infinite joy. But we settle for instant gratification or shallow pleasure, mud pies in a slum. Comparison to the infinite joy. God offers you infinite joy. It's like the more we give ourselves to the, the mud pies in the slum, it's like our desires shrink and shrink and shrink and are more and more satisfied with that rather than the infinite joy that we have in Christ, that we can enjoy in God. Amazing. Our, our joys can sink to a Facebook page or YouTube or whatever, yet God offers us infinite joy. And these other things, they're all at your fingertips and there's no faith required and they're so convenient you can sit in your armchair and just soak in the mud pies, as it were, in the slum. Look, somewhere, somehow, sometime, we just need to make some choices. We can make choices. We don't need to, to carry on as we have. We can win some territory back. I want to put it to you this morning. Why not win some territory in God back? Why not win some faith back? Why not redirect our desires again towards him? Why not put all our eggs, as it were, our desire eggs into his basket? Why don't we begin to make some choices? Or if we don't, my fear is that my life, our lives will become, you know, whether short or long, so-and-so lived, so-and-so fathered, and so-and-so died. Yes, so-and-so had 2.4 children and two cars in the driveway, a holiday up north, and then he died. That would be so sad when God offers us infinite joy. In the light of eternity, worldly things will be very dull. 
I want to construct a life of meaning and purpose in Jesus, don't you? Don't you want to do that? Meaning and purpose. I want to nurture my garden of faith. I want to redirect my desires. I want to repent in my heart or resolve in my heart today to pull out some of those weeds and decide in my heart, God, I want to put into my garden that which I know is true and helpful. I want to put the word of God back in there. I want to be amongst God's people. I want to meet with him. In a way, that's what this week of prayer is really all about. It's an opportunity to put time aside and to redirect our focus again. And to say, I'm going to make some shifts. I'm going to make some choices. I'm going to put time aside. I'm going to seek his face. I'm going to ask him to help me to identify the weeds that I need to pull out. And I'm going to, by his grace and by his mercy and by his spirit, I'm going to realign the course of my life again so it's back into him and redefine where my desires should be. So this week is a miraculous week, really. It's a week of encounter, even as we go into it. It's God, we need you. We want to move on from where we are. We want to reclaim some territory in our lives. Amen? I think it could be a good week. Let's stand, shall we? Let's stand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.